Thanks very much, Andy. It's a somewhat little-known fact that Andy's my brother-in-law, just getting it out there, but I um, appreciate the reading, mate. And uh, also I've really enjoyed the, um, the focus on Wycliffe this morning. Um, for me personally, uh, we've had some interaction with Wycliffe over the years and uh, it was at a jungle camp with Jeff and Aileen Morrow that um, you know God really stirred my uh, heart towards him in a, in a big way. Uh, Jeff... Um, he's a fantastic guy he's, he's gone to be with Jesus now but he he used to send me messages uh, two or three in the morning and say I'm just awake um, God's put you on my heart so I'm just praying for you thinking of you um, and uh, we've been to Wycliffe Probe as well Maz and myself and uh, really appreciate the work that Wycliffe does as an organisation but this morning we're uh, turning our attention back to Genesis again We're uh, well into the series now, which we started in chapter 12, uh, looking at the patriarchs. And of course, uh, today, um, Abraham's getting quite old, so it's really, uh, we're starting to draw the curtain on Abraham's life of faith. And uh, we'll be um, getting into Isaac and Jacob in coming weeks. But as we come to chapter 24, uh, we see that Abraham... I think, is uh, in full blossom as a man of faith. We saw last week uh, the sacrifice of Isaac, the testing of Abraham in that way. And as we come to chapter 12, uh, sorry, 24, um, we, we really see Abraham expressing his faith and we'll, we'll go through that in the first nine verses. Uh, and so as we've looked at Abraham, we've seen his remarkable faith. We've also seen his failings. Um, the Bible hasn't held back from us in either regard there. Uh, but today uh, he's coming to the end of his life. He's about 140 years old. Uh, Sarah's been dead for three or so years. Abraham's not sure how much longer he's got. So what will Abraham do? What legacy will he leave? Um, he's thinking about that. He's thinking, what steps do I need to put in place to tie up the loose ends uh, so that I can depart this life having done what God required of me? And so, in the first, um, actually before I get into the passage, I just wanted to um, draw our attention to a a passage that Lee read to us last week from Isaac. It really ties into this passage well. And it says, from Hebrews uh, chapter 11 verse 17, By faith Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And as we consider this background, we see that Abraham has firmly embraced the promise that Isaac, and, and Isaac as the means to that promise. So he's convinced that God's promises will come to pass, that God has what it takes to bring those promises to pass and he's also um, taken on board what God's shown him, that Isaac is the son which... Uh, through which those promises will come to fulfilment. And so, framing up today's passage then, we see in nine verses that uh, Abraham is is really focused on um, God's will and what that will mean to him. And so we have Abraham committing his uh, most trusted servant, possibly Eliezer, we don't know, uh, to this mission of finding a wife. And you might ask, Uh, why Abraham is so um, adamant that Isaac 
uh, can't marry a Canaanite woman uh, and can't go back to Mesopotamia himself. And we see that um, some of the reason for this is that the Canaanite um, people were quite wicked. Of course, this goes all the way back to the um, just after the flood with Noah. Noah, his, Noah's son Ham uh, had an immoral spirit to him and Noah condemns and curses Ham's son Canaan as seemingly embodying that um, wickedness and it turns out that the, the people of Canaan, uh, just as Noah had said, uh, turn out to be a, a wicked bunch. They are uh, involved in child sacrifice, sacrificing their firstborn children in fire uh, to their false gods. They're also involved in a lot of sexual immorality and wrapping that around their, their worship, uh, shrine prostitution and so on. And uh, we see a, a bigger description of that in uh, Leviticus chapter 18, uh, the full extent of the wickedness of the nations uh, that Israel will eventually display, displace from Canaan. Uh, and we also see that uh, Isaac, I mean, Abraham is very keen that Isaac doesn't go back to Mesopotamia. The temptation of uh, possibly staying there, having his family close by, it's tough to live in Canaan uh, in a tent among strangers uh, compared to going back to Mesopotamia and living with family there. Uh, and as per the, the passage on the screen there, we'll remember that when Josh spoke to us about the, the covenant that God made with Abraham, splitting those uh, animal carcasses and, and God going through the middle, wrapped around that was this dialogue where Abraham asks, God, how can I know that I'm going to possess the land? And, and God comes back to him and says, your, your people will go away into slavery uh, and in the fourth generation they'll come back here to possess the land. So Abraham is aware at the back of his mind or maybe at the forefront of his mind even that the Canaanite people uh, will be judged for their wickedness. He can see their wickedness but it hasn't reached uh, the full strength uh, yet and God says the wickedness of the Amorites or the Canaanites hasn't reached full measure uh, but when it does um, I will act in judgement. I will act to bring justice against all their abuses of the innocent and uh, their systematic cultural evils. But so we see here that uh, Abraham is really looking at God's will, what it looks like for him. In these first nine verses you get this really pragmatic or practical way that Abraham is actually saying, what is God's revealed will to me and how can I align myself to make sure that that will is done. So practically speaking, if you want to be a great nation, which God has promised him, Isaac, as the son of promise, needs a wife. You can't have a nation without a wife. Isaac is the son of promise. He needs to get the kids on the way. Another promise to Abraham, all peoples on the earth will be blessed through him. So it's vital then that Abraham, uh, Isaac gets a wife of good character. The Canaanite women are thoroughly saturated with this um, pagan, idol-worshipping, uh, immoral culture and they're not the kind of wife that Isaac needs if he's going to be a blessing to all nations. And then finally with uh, the promise of receiving the land, possessing the land, Abraham 
predicts that it might be a temptation for Isaac in Mesopotamia uh, to stay there and, and maybe reject the promised land, reject God's calling for them to live in Canaan. So Abraham makes provision with his servant to say, whatever you do, don't take it. Isaac himself, back to Mesopotamia. So I love this, that Abraham uh, could maybe sit on, sit on his back foot and say, well, God seems to be pretty good at bringing his plans to pass and blessing me despite my failures, actually despite whatever I seem to do. So maybe I can just sit back. God, God will bring a great nation to pass. I know he's going to bring all these promises. I'm too old to be chasing these things. So I'm just going to sit back and see what God will do. But Abraham's not like that. He's very practical. So this is what God's will, God's will has been revealed to me as. So I'm going to do everything in my power to make it happen. Uh, and I love that. But seeing Abraham full of faith, seeing his responsiveness to God's will and, and seeing his willingness to play a part in it makes me wonder uh, what we can learn about our response to God's will. And the first thing I'd note about uh, Abraham's response here is that it's not fatalistic or passive. So I'm going to read out a few statements here and uh, see if you can resonate either yourself or maybe others uh, have said things um, such as this or in a similar vein. So we're saved and God forgives all our sins so we don't need to work on repenting or obedience or becoming more like Jesus. God will make us perfect eventually anyway uh, and we're all going to be the same in heaven so um, you know, maybe we can be a bit more relaxed, don't get too serious. Maybe you've heard this. God already knows everyone who will be saved, so he doesn't need me to share my faith. Plus, it's not my spiritual gift anyway. I can just sit on my butt in church because it's God's job to build the church and there seems to be plenty of people serving already. And you see, we may not use these exact words or we may not have heard these exact words, but at the essence Um, of these kind of ways of thinking uh, is a mistake and incorrect use of the truth of God's sovereignty uh, as a cop-out for our indifference or our laziness. And if we had to sum that up, we'd say we're really trying to minimise our responsibilities. And you see Abraham here, he's convinced that God can bring this to pass but he's still actively seeking how he can be involved in the situation. Not meddling, but just saying, God, this is what you've said you're going to do. I'm going to be a part of making it happen as well by being obedient to your will. And then secondly, uh, Abraham isn't presumptuous or arrogant. So you might have heard some of these kind of statements. I prayed and prayed and prayed, but God didn't answer my prayers, so I've become disappointed in God. I don't think I can really trust him. God made it very clear that he wanted me to follow this pathway, marry this person, go to this church, take this job. But everything just seems to be a big mess now. Why didn't God tell me or make it clearer in the first place? I've suffered financially, physically, emotionally and God didn't protect me, didn't protect my loved ones when he had promised that he would care for me. I'm not growing as a Christian but it's because my marriage has been too difficult. 
church is not really doing it for me. I'm too busy and stressed with everything else going on in my life. And I'm not trying to oversimplify people's emotion or the the challenges we face. But some of these ways of thinking, uh, and it's a bit more subtle, but they involve presuming on God, us telling God how everything is going to unfold, just the way we think it will, expecting God to behave in a certain way or that we can understand his big plan uh, with our our, uh, perfect understanding and not making an allowance for his plan to be bigger and wiser than we can comprehend. And uh, if we had to summarise that, we'd say it's really about over overstating our understanding and blaming God for some of the cracks that appear. But I want us to take notice of Abraham's approach. And he essentially, uh, paraphrasing it, he says to the servant, I believe God will go before you. God will send his angel before you. The mission will be a success. Uh, you'll find a good wife for Isaac. But if you don't, you're released from the vow. Maybe God is going to bring his promises to fulfilment some other way that I don't know about. And so I think uh, we get this great picture. We've seen Abraham's failings. We know he's not perfect. In the following chapter we see him. Uh, he's taken another uh, wife or concubine, uh, Keturah, and has other children by her, um, seeming to be a, a failing of... Uh, trusting God to build his descendant base, his building into a great nation. But in this chapter I think we get this really picture, really good picture of Abraham expressing his faith well. And as we uh, draw the curtain on the life of Abraham, which I want to do out of these first nine verses, I think it really challenges us to um, ask ourselves the, the tough questions about where we are with God. And so maybe you can close your eyes and just uh, reflect on these questions that I ask. And it's not going to be something that you're going to be able to examine in 10 seconds, but maybe you can take them back with you after today as well. So I wonder, are you following God? Are you living the life that God wants you to live? Do you long to be more like Jesus? Are you hungry and thirsty for holiness? How has your walk with God been going? Are you walking closely with him at the moment? Are you devoted to serving him? And if, if the answer to some of these questions that I've just asked is a, is a no or... There's, a, there's some emotional hesitancy there. I think there's something we can probably learn from Abraham's response. And uh, those two points of responding to God's will, whether we excuse our responsibility and take the sort of lazy or becoming godly is just too much hard work kind of line, or on the other hand, we uh, overstate our understanding of God and, and his will and, and oversimplify it. And we're not letting God be God and uh, as a result sometimes we're blaming God for our lack of growth or our distance from God when really, uh, when any of us look truthfully um, at our walk with God and we're not walking with him as we should be. Uh, The only 
thing that can address that is us as individuals uh, turning back and seeking God. So we now move into the the second part of the passage that Andy read for us, which is the uh, great wife hunt, I've called it. And uh, I've even got an amazing animation, so I have to watch the little camel down there in Israel go on his trip. Hey, that's technology, Lee. Um, So in this next passage, we read that uh, Abraham sends off his servant uh, and a couple of other men with ten camels. They're obviously expectant of um, good results. They take some spare camels for the ladies. They take this really long journey, potentially uh, a thousand kilometres to northwest Mesopotamia and possibly somewhere up near Haran. We don't really know where the city of Nahor was but it seems pretty logical that um, Nahor, Abraham's brother, had founded the city. So if you're looking for Abraham's relatives... Great place to go to find a girl, even though there'd be plenty of other um, people living there as well, servants and, and workers and so on. And so when the servant arrives after his long and tiring journey, he uh, uses the great camel test, well known to young men the world over. Us married men uh, didn't get there by good looks and intelligence, obviously and uh, any single young men should really take notice of this test. But I think that the key thing here, and I've got some fun facts about camels. <laughs> I didn't tell Maz she's going to be famous today. so um, They can go for days, even months, without water. They can drink up to 200 litres uh, in a session, although probably more likely to be 100 or 150 litres. And when you think of these 10 camels trekking across the desert and arriving at uh, Nahor... Uh, we can think that we don't know exactly what the well was. It seems like uh, Rebecca's running back and forth to this well um, and she's very enthusiastic. Maybe it was a a spring that they tapped, maybe it was a well that she had to actually put down a bucket. Um, Either way, the fact that the servant used it as a test is indication that It wasn't just common courtesy that you'd expect in the Middle East that you roll up with your ten thirsty camels and and someone drawing water for themselves and takes it upon themselves to water your camels as well. The servant says, I'm going to put this as a pretty high bar so that I can be sure uh, if a woman does this that that it's God's choice for Isaac. And the other thing, of course, about the test is that it proves the woman herself has got good character. She's generous, hard-working, hospitable a great wife for Isaac. And reading on, we find that Rebecca comes along and and passes the test. She doesn't just sit back in disinterest and let small children draw water for her. (laughs) She, um, She fulfils the test. Of course, the servant sits back quietly. Um... When this woman offers to feed the camels, he doesn't say, hooray, my mission's a success. He sits back and waits to see whether the full test will be passed, whether God is really um, highlighting that Rebecca is the one for Isaac. And when she does water all the camels, as she finishes up, he brings out uh, these gold bracelets, 100 grams of gold and the gold nose ring, and he asks her, uh, before he gives her the bracelets, he says, 
He's convinced she's the one. He brings out the bracelets, but he says, tell me who your family is. And she tells him. And after, after she does, uh, he places these items of gold on her. They go back to the house and uh, we skip the bit where the servant basically um, explains again his mission to the family and his um, mission for Abraham. And we find the family themselves in quick order, uh, turn around. Before long, Rebecca's on the, on the camel heading back and it all seems to happen pretty quickly. And in future chapters, we're going to be looking at uh, Rachel, uh, Rebecca in a bit more detail. We'll also be looking at uh, Laban. And we get a hint of their character. We get a hint of Rebecca's strong will uh, and her enthusiastic serving and willingness uh, to head off with the strangers to a man she hasn't met. We also get some hints about Laban being uh, fairly hungry for the gold, fairly influenced by it and fairly greedy and um, superficial in the way he deals with uh, family. But today I want to focus on the servant, Abraham's servant. The more I've read these chapters through, the more I get the impression that this servant must be a really godly man. Uh, Initially I wondered... Maybe he's just riding along on Abraham's faith. He talks about um, the God of Abraham, etc. But I don't think so. Uh, firstly, Abraham wouldn't have put him in charge of his extensive wealth if he didn't have the character to go with it. The servant is presented as an unassuming uh, background player. He's a quiet man, but he's also a no-nonsense action man. He says, we're not going to eat until we until I um, say what I've come to say. And when they uh, put, put the offer on the table of the usual hospitality and 10 days wait, etc., etc., uh, the servant says, please don't delay me. Uh, I just want to go back to Abraham and show him how God has um, made his mission a success. I'd say probably atypical of uh, Arab culture, Middle Eastern culture. And of course, when... The servant comes into town, he prays. Uh, before he even finishes praying, God answers his prayer. But when God does, he uh, bows down, he, he thanks God, he praises God and worships God. And if this servant is Eliezer, the, uh, one of Abraham's first servants that he picked up on the way uh, from Haran to the Promised Land, probably in Damascus on the way through, it just makes it more special. That his, that his faith comes out in this way. Eliezer at one point was the inheritor of all Abraham's wealth. Uh, as soon as Isaac shows up, uh, Eliezer's off the cards as an option. So his faithfulness here of uh, hunting down a wife for Isaac, just further establishing um, Isaac's relationship as heir of all Abraham, Abraham's wealth uh, is really commendable. And to me, it seems to me that the servant um, doesn't depend on his own personal rewards or the recognition of others for um, how he commits himself to the service of Abraham. And I guess for us, uh, as we think about this servant and what we can learn from him, no community of God's people can thrive uh, unless they have people like this servant among them. These people might never be up here, uh, up the front, doing something. Might, they might not even be noticed much in the church or recognised uh, for their service. 
but they're the engine room of the church. These are people who are praying for everybody, looking, looking for ways they can encourage others, looking for needs they can meet, serving tirelessly. You know they're going to be there uh, serving, setting up, doing their thing. They're the people that are behind the scenes often, but really getting the job done. And if you're one of these people at Monty, I just thank you and uh, praise God for you that you serve in this way. And I think if, we, if you aren't one of these people yet, we can all be challenged to serve more, to um, learn from this servant's example of faithfulness and reliability. I've said there that uh, Monty and uh, Wycliffe and many other um, Christian groups and organisations can really benefit from these sort of people and we've, we've heard a bit this morning uh, about God's faithfulness over 60 plus years of Wycliffe ministry but his faithfulness works with uh, human faithfulness and responsibility as well. So I just want to pray for us now as we uh, consider the passage and what we've learnt this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, thanks for this chance to uh, look at Genesis chapter 24. And we haven't had the time to uh, sink ourselves into chapter 25, but I pray that people can have a look at that through the week and really um, learn from that and uh, in preparation for future weeks where we're looking at Genesis as well. But Lord, I thank you for today's uh, look at chapter 24 of Genesis. Thank you for Abraham's faith in full blossom, Lord. We've seen his failings, we've seen his fears, we've seen his uh, faith as well, Lord. And uh, he's just such a remarkable man and we thank you that he didn't just sit back uh, passively but that he actively engaged in what your will was for him and he sought ways to be obedient. Simple ways, we might say, hunting down a wife for Isaac, looking for a wife of good character and also wanting to keep Isaac in Canaan. But that was your revealed will to him, Lord, and he was obedient to it, to bring it to pass. And Lord, you've also revealed your will to us through your word. I pray for each one of us, Lord, as we thought about the questions this morning of how close we are walking with you, Lord, whether we're really being obedient to you, living the life for you that we should be, Dear God, I just ask that you would help each one of us to consider those questions, to think about any uh, barriers on our side, Lord, that have been keeping us uh, from being in an intimate relationship with you and from being in a place where you can really bless us and use us for your work. Lord, help us to turn away from any things which have been hindering us in that way. God too we thank you for the example of Abraham's servant and the godly man that he was and just ask that you might help each one of us to have hearts that serve, that want to serve like this servant. God thank you so much for the people who have served at Monty over the years, over decades, people who have served at Wycliffe for many decades. Oftentimes not many people at all know about their work Lord except you. And I just want to thank you for raising them up, for encouraging them to stay faithful and for using their work in ways which we probably won't ever get to see until we get to heaven. But God, I just pray that each one of us 
would have a, a heart of faithful service to you this morning, Lord, that you would convict and challenge us uh, if we've been sitting back and, and uh, warming seats instead of serving you in our families, serving you in the church, actively serving you in our workplaces and being, being on your mission, Lord. And so we just pray for these things. We pray for your help and, and uh, that your spirit might fill us and we commit them to you in the precious name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.